Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. After Cody Keenan became President Obama's chief speechwriter, Mr. Obama called him his Hemingway. In his new book, Grace, President Obama and Ten Days in the Battle for America, Mr. Keenan has written about a time when a white supremacist shooting forced the president and the nation to confront issues of race and the place of the Confederate flag in our country. Marriage, equality, and the Affordable Care Act were on the table at the time, as were some critical impending Supreme Court decisions. The book, which has become an instant New York Times bestseller, is published by Mariner Books and brings Cody Keenan to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Thanks for having me. Didn't you start your speechwriting career interning for Senator Ted Kennedy in 2002? I did. I, I started interning for him in 2002. I probably didn't write my first speech for him until 2005. Hmm. So what were you doing for those three years? A mix of things. Uh, I, I literally began in his windowless mailroom, opening mail, uh, reading and routing it, walked his dogs, got people lunch, gave capital tours, you know, the, the, the basic grunt work at the bottom. But it was also my best political learning experience, not just watching, you know, probably the, the best senator of the age with the most bills to his name, craft legislation, but... In reading letters from the American people, it changes how you think about politics and why it really matters. Um, you know, people, not just constituents of his, but but people from all across the country and the world reaching out to the last Kennedy brother to tell him about their lives was a very powerful thing that I never let go of. And don't you describe him as an old breed politician? Yeah, he he was really the kind. I mean, he he was he was unique in that. You know, he was he was viewed as a partisan lightning rod, uh, as you know, one of the most liberal senators. But he also had with the name Kennedy, uh, with the name Kennedy. But he also had probably more significant legislation with his name on it than anybody else in history. Um, those two things didn't live in conflict, and he he had this great way of even senators who basically ran against him even if they were running from their own states, had a way of getting together and working with him. Um, Orrin Hatch from Utah, one of the more conservative members of the Senate, was one of his best friends. And they worked together on all sorts of legislation. Can you think of uh, any present-day politicians who would fit that old breed description? There aren't many. Um, and Why that's do you not think it's faded? Well, it's it's not necessarily the fault of those politicians themselves, the, the media environment now and the political environment punishes you for reaching across the aisle and trying to get things done. That's not to say it can't get done. I mean, Joe Biden has actually signed into law much, much bigger bipartisan legislation than President Obama did. Um, so it is still possible. Now, your parents both worked in advertising. What did they do? And do you think that their work influenced you and your career? It did. My mom actually got her start as a as an English teacher uh, and got her master's in journalism, but ultimately went into advertising. And advertising is became really a copywriter. <laughs> maybe, maybe they were uh, they were they were more in client relations, but but advertising is just storytelling and thirty second sound bites. You know, I've I've never sold beer or cars, but um, it, it's the power of a good story in a short amount of time is is directly applicable to speech writing. And you attended Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government to earn a master's degree in public policy. Was speech writing and delivery part of the curriculum? No, I, I did focus on writing. This was after I'd worked for Senator Kennedy. So, and and I'd, I'd started thinking at that point that I wanted to be a speechwriter. But 
so one of the things I did was actually become the the opinions editor of the school paper, hmm. uh, where I'm, I wasn't just writing columns every week. I was editing other people's columns, and that helps you become a better speechwriter by taking somebody else's words and helping them sort of find their voice and their argument. Didn't what you wrote for Senator Kennedy earn you a place on Obama's presidential campaign and on his team? It did, uh, mostly actually because I shared a mentor with John Favreau, who was was then Senator Obama's chief speechwriter, uh, a woman named who you Stephanie later Cutter. replaced. Yeah, a woman named Stephanie Cutter was Ted Kennedy's communications director, and then communications director on John Kerry's presidential campaign, and and both John Favreau and I reported to her. And she connected us in early 2007. And John was from Massachusetts and had seen some of the stuff I'd written for Senator Kennedy. And he brought me on as his intern. And so then uh, after you, uh, then you uh, took a full-time position on Mr. Obama's presidential campaign 2008, became his deputy director of speechwriting the following year, and his director of speechwriting in 2013 when John Favreau left the White House. That's right, yeah. I just kind of held on for 14 years. I finally <laughs> left. I finally left uh, President Obama's side at, at the beginning of 2021. Well, you must have got along well enough for that to last that long. Yeah, thank goodness. You say that one of the big themes of President Obama's speeches was the idea that ordinary people without power or privilege could come together to change their own destiny. Um, Absolutely. That was that was an organizing principle of his entire career that he learned early on as a community organizer in Chicago. And it's what won him um, two terms in the White House. And it's it's really fundamental to the story of America. I mean, that what you just quoted is directly mm -hmm. from uh, his speech in Selma, Alabama in 2015, honoring what those marchers did back in 1965. And it's when America's at its best. It really is just ordinary people who come together uh, to change the country's course and bring us closer to the founding ideals that we that we profess to believe in. Was working for him very different than working for Ted Kennedy? <laughs> it was, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy might take what you wrote for him and read from it, or he might just do his own thing. Um, President Obama was a writer, first and foremost, and, and he was on record saying he's a better speechwriter than his speechwriters. So writing for him was really a collaborative exercise. It was actually writing with him and he would dive into every speech from 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 its conception uh, and then ultimately get out his pen and work to make each speech better. In the speech to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the marches from Selma to Montgomery, you say that the expectation for a speechwriter might be rather straightforward. Let the symbolism do the talking. But you say that President Obama would never, I'm quoting, never let a captive audience go to waste. To meet his expectations demanded using Selma as a lens to examine and explain that history. That's absolutely right. You know, just the very idea that that 50 years after, you know, a group of mostly poor, mostly black people uh, were beaten and tear gassed for demanding a right to vote, you know, just just not special treatment, but equal treatment. The very idea that a black president would come back to commemorate that is, well, I'll just let John Lewis do the talking. He introduced President Obama that day and said, look, if you told me this was going to happen, I'd have said you're crazy. I'd have said you're out of your mind. And it was a very symbolic look at how far America had come. But that was never enough for him. A captive audience is a terrible thing to waste, especially when you're president of the United States. And and what he wanted to do was give today's generation of young marchers their marching orders. 
And some of the words from that speech include, quote, Selma is not some outlier in the American experience. Selma is the manifestation of a creed written into our founding documents. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. These are not just words. He said these are, they're a living thing, a call to action, a roadmap for citizenship and an insistence on the capacity of free men and women to shape our own destiny. How many of those are his words totally and how many of them are the result of collaboration with speechwriter? Well, he was always our chief speechwriter, uh, so he deserves the lion's share of the credit. With with a speech like that, though, we were very fortunate. Um, I write about this in the prologue to the book. We, we were very fortunate to have a snow day in Washington where I think it snowed maybe five or seven inches. And the city just sort of sort of shuts down. It's not a, it's not equipped to deal with that. But but also, you know, they just want to keep a few hundred thousand people off the roads. I went to work because I wanted to get his time on a speech like this. Uh, I knew most of his meetings would be pulled down. And he and I spent the day in the Oval Office, you know, with the snow getting deeper and deeper. Just we handed five drafts back and forth over the course of that day, each one getting better than the last. And he always viewed speech writing as a collaborative exercise, and, and that speech was probably our most collaborative exercise. Um, so I, I can't tell you which words were mine and which were his, because especially with that speech, uh, we worked so closely together, each draft getting better than the last, which was so rare. Uh, and that's what that's what made that speech so good. And he stressed the importance of the word we, we. We the people, we shall overcome. Yes, we can. Um, so you say it took you about a day to, to draft that uh, speech. Uh, is was that typical? No, I, I well, most you know, we wrote three thousand four hundred seventy-seven speeches and statements in the White House. Um, that's more than one a day. So typically, we didn't have that much time. I knew that the Selma speech was coming. It was on the calendar. It's, you know, it's an anniversary that you can't miss. So I, I had been noodling with a bunch of different ideas in my head and just jotting them down on a notepad for a few months. Um, so it made the writing a little bit easier. But I, you know, I had a draft to show him that morning. And then from there, we went through four more. So I had a little bit more time than usual. You say that you love your office in the White House. You called it the speech cave? <laughs> yeah, I did. It, it was it was a terrible office and I loved it. Uh, it was right underneath the Oval Office. So it was it was underground. It had no windows. The lighting was poor. But it was um, close to the president's office. So it was close to the president's yeah. office. And I just I sort of decorated it to make it my own so that it would be a little less dreary. You know, I had I'm a Chicagoan. So I had Chicago sports mm -hmm. memorabilia everywhere, political memorabilia, my grandfather's war medals, family photos. I made it as cozy as I could, even though I still needed vitamin D pills from the White House doctors just for, for lack of sunshine. And that was when you became the head speechwriter. Before that, were, right. you, were you sharing offices with others and talking about what you thought a speech should in, could should it contain? Yes. For the first two years, I worked across the driveway in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, where the offices are gorgeous. You know, it's 20-foot ceilings and, and uh, columns and just kind of beautiful, what you would expect of the White House. In 2011, I moved into the West Wing and I shared an office with John Favreau for two years. Uh, we actually did have windows then, so we had sunlight. But by the time I became chief, I moved further 
underground uh same level but but underneath the oval and so you 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 that's the great irony of working in the white house if most of the staffers get these beautiful offices across the hallway but or across the driveway but as you get closer to power your your office shrinks and i had low i had low ceilings i think they were like seven feet so he was coming close to scraping his head when he came in there hey you described the oval office quote if your self-importance swells while ascending the White House driveway for a meeting with the president, the Oval Office punctures it right away. It's the best home court advantage in the world, and Obama pressed that advantage. How, how is the Oval Office strategically arranged? It, it's the one room that looks exactly the same as it does on television and in the movies. You know, otherwise they, they make the West Wing look a little more dramatic than it is. But... <clears throat> Uh, you know, the first time I walked in there, just your mouth goes dry. You know, you, you can't speak. You are overwhelmed by your surroundings. The lighting is different. It's almost like you walked into live television and, and everything is more important than it was a minute ago. And Obama pressed that advantage by keeping the Oval Office a little warmer than you would like. I mean, that, that makes sense for someone like him who uh, kind of spent his, his upbringing between the 22nd parallels. But for everybody else, it was a little uncomfortable in the... The seating was uncomfortable, and so you're always sort of on your toes, whereas he was, his seating wasn't uncomfortable, so he's always at ease. And he uh, could and he take off his jacket. Were other people allowed to take off their jackets? I would follow his lead. If he would do that, I'd do that. If he'd roll up his sleeves, I'd roll up my sleeves. Um, but like everything else, with time, you, you get more used to it. So you learned to overcome the room's challenges over time? I did. It took a long time, but, but I eventually got there. You say Barack Obama is a writer, perhaps more than any president before him. So how many revisions would you go through on a typical speech? And what kind of feedback would he offer you if you gave him a complete speech? Yeah, well, one of the fun things about the job is there is no typical speech. You know, if he was just going to go out and speak for 10 minutes on a certain one particular issue, we might just give him a draft the night before and he'd make some solid edits to it. And that's about it. But, but for something like Selma, for something like the eulogy in Charleston, for a uh, state of the union address, he might go through as many as six or seven drafts. And by the end, every word is exactly where he wanted it. You know, he, he could even, when we, when we'd practice a speech, um, like before the state of the union address, he could identify whether or not a line needed an extra syllable or needed one syllable less. Um, so that by the time it was in the teleprompter, it was like a sheet of music. It's exactly as he wanted it, and it was just time to perform. And you write about the editing process with President Obama. Quote, I'd learned over the years to keep any reservations about a first draft to myself, or he'd dispatch me back to my office to keep working. Without any right. feedback from him on what I'd already spent days agonizing over. That's absolutely right. I, I learned not to tell him. Uh, I'm not sure about this draft. I'm not sure if it's there. Because if I said that, he'd say, well, go keep working on it until it's good. So I'd eventually just start coming in and say it's good because I knew I needed him to get involved and, and make it better. And how would he rehearse a speech or would he rehearse one? By the end, we were only rehearsing the State of the Union address just because it was so long. And we would set up a podium with teleprompters in the map room of the residence. It's on the ground floor uh, right next to where he would exit to get on Marine One. And we'd run through the full speech. I'd have a draft in front of me, and, and uh, he might make edits on the fly, say, you know what, I don't like the way that sentence sounds. Let's change that up. Like I said, maybe it needs another syllable. Uh, and I'd quickly you know, punch some 
punch some edits in at my computer before we headed off to the Capitol. I'd also maybe underline some words that I wanted him to emphasize, mm. um, you know, kind of make it an instruction to him in the text. My guest is Cody Keenan, the former chief White House speechwriter, talking about his book, Grace, President Obama and Ten Days in the Battle for America, published by Mariner Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So let's talk about those 10 days. Uh, They were in 2015. What, why those 10 days in particular as, as the basic topic of this book? Two reasons. One is the sheer magnitude of the events that happened in those 10 days are a story that just demanded to be told. Uh, you know, when I told friends I was working on this book and mentioned all the component parts of it, they said, man, I remember all those events. I did not remember that they were all in the same week. And it started with this white supremacist massacre in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, where a self-radicalized man went into a black church service uh, and murdered eight parishioners and their pastor, uh, a Bible study group. And it unfolded through how the president had to respond to that as the first black president. It unfolded through the families of the victims performing this extraordinary act of grace by forgiving the killer at his arraignment. You started to see the Confederate flag uh, Republican governors started quietly bringing it down over public spaces in the South. You know, our, our biggest retailers stopped selling Confederate merchandise. And all the while, we had been preparing for Supreme Court decisions on marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act that, you know, if they had gone the wrong way, the Supreme Court would have basically been telling millions of Americans who, you know, work one or two jobs, um, sorry, you don't you don't have the right to affordable health insurance. They would have been telling millions of gay Americans, sorry, you're a second class citizen. You don't have the right to get married like the rest of us do. And we had to prepare multiple speeches for every outcome because you don't want to keep the country waiting when that happens. And through it all, there's a big drama about whether or not President Obama is going to give eulogy in Charleston at all because he didn't want to. And I didn't want to write one. Ultimately, obviously, he did and sang Amazing Grace. And and we returned to the White House that night uh, that was lit up in all the colors of the rainbow. And all that happened in just 10 days. But the other reason is each of these events speak directly to who we are as Americans, whether or not we believe that all of us are created equal, whether or not we're going to stand up to bigotry and white supremacy and stand up for working folks who who just need a fair shake. Uh, and that's why it's it's called, you know, 10 Days in the Battle for America. I, I borrowed the thesis for the book from his Selma speech. And it was a line he added that, that Selma was not a clash of armies. It was a clash of wills, a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And I think that's true of our politics, too. I mean, we are engaged in a contest to determine the true meaning of America all the time. Well, some of these uh things continue to be issues. Uh, Just to remind listeners uh, about those Supreme Court decisions, it was King versus Burwell that interpreted provisions of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and Obergefell versus Hodges that involved same-sex marriage. Are you surprised yeah. that uh, the, the, that the next Supreme that this Supreme Court might very well get rid of those decisions or change them? I'm not surprised. Uh, it's something we need to be constantly vigilant and aware of. And, and you know, President Obama always said, even before he was running for office, that progress is fragile. Democracy is fragile. For every two steps forward, sometimes we take a step back or maybe two or three. And 
progress requires constant vigilance. You don't just win something and move on. You fight to protect it and build on it. And, you know, again, the fact that we are engaged in this constant battle, it, it should worry people that the Supreme Court is looking at overturning marriage equality. It just it seems shocking that that anyone would want to do that. But it is it is something that people need to be aware of, uh, especially with the midterm elections coming up. You know, if 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 Republicans take the Senate, Joe Biden doesn't get to appoint any new Supreme Court justices and Democrats might not get to do that for a long time. And it really could be the end of a lot of significant progressive victories. Uh, on well, that you, you mentioned the racially motivated shooting that led to the killing of nine churchgoers at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. But in two, 2015 alone, there were over 300 mass shootings in the United States. So as a presidential speechwriter, what were your thought processes as you learned about the one in Charleston? Was it important that perhaps it was more racially motivated than some of the others, or were they most of them racially motivated? You know, there's no way to really rank mass shootings. Um, they're all uniquely horrible. Uh, some some are just more appalling than others. You know, I think of Newtown, uh, when a, a young man with an AR-15 went in and murdered 20 little kids. Hmm. Adding that racial component really threatened it. it, it it tore at some of our oldest and deepest wounds and divisions that we have obviously not yet fully healed or dealt with. Uh, and it's something where the country could have, you know, descended even further. Um, the first black president was expected to speak about it, and he spoke about it in ways that obviously his successor probably would not. Um, but it, it, it was something that you just knew people would expect him to speak about. But he, like I said, he didn't want to give a eulogy at first. And I didn't want to write one because we had done this so many times. And, and you say you found the statement on the Charleston shooting very difficult to write. It is. You know, writing about race, writing about racial hatred is difficult. That doesn't mean that there's any, there's no blank space between right and wrong in a situation like that. And, and part of a president's job is to lend some sense of moral clarity to the country um, and to, you know, convince the, the country that the world will keep spinning, even if it's full of holes, even if there's nothing that you can do at this point. But, you know, in, in, in 2012, after the Newtown shootings, President Obama had just been reelected and he set aside his second term agenda to try to do something about guns um, and gun violence, knowing that the odds were long, knowing that Without 60 votes in the Senate, Republicans could block anything. One little glimmer of hope was that two conservatives came together, two conservatives with A ratings from the NRA, Republican Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania and Democrat Joe Manchin from West Virginia. They came together and wrote a background checks bill. And this was something that 90 percent of the country supported. I mean, most Americans thought it already was the law. 80 percent of Republicans supported it. 70 percent of NRA households supported it. And then Republicans in the Senate blocked a vote on it with the parents of some of the dead Newtown children looking on from the gallery. And that's this was April 2013. And that's about as cynical as I've ever seen President Obama get. <clears throat> he said, you know, he came back in from speaking in the Rose Garden with those families and said, look, the next time this happens, I don't want to speak. If we have decided as a country that we're just not going to do anything about this, 
then I don't want to perpetuate this cycle where every time this happens, I go out and give a eulogy and we all get to move on because I don't want people to move on from this. This is political. We have to politicize this until some, until we care enough to change con- the makeup of Congress. And Charleston put that to the test. He, he went and spoke after two more mass shootings on military bases because he's commander in chief. Um, well, he but, made but edits Charleston, about gun violence in his speech, didn't he, in his statement? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, but the question is whether or not we'd give another eulogy was an open one. What changed things was when those families down in Charleston, one by one, you know, through their tears, forgave the killer. Uh, that's something I wouldn't be able to do. And you know, it's something that someone I, I, I remember talking to Obama's pastor, Joshua Dubois, the day that happened. And he said, well, he said, for, for somebody who's steeped in the AME church, um, that's what we're taught to do. You know, the fundamental tenets of the AME church are grace and forgiveness. So these people were literally practicing what they preached. But but the sheer fact of them doing that is ultimately what pushed Barack Obama into giving a eulogy. Well, the massacre was racially motivated and he was an African-American president. Did he feel uh, certain pressures or did he feel that there were certain things he should avoid saying as because of that? Well, it wasn't anything new. You know, there there was a black church in Massachusetts that was firebombed. It was either the night he was elected or the day he was inaugurated. I can't remember. It's it's racism was nothing new. Racial violence is nothing new. Um, yeah, he but he felt, was a president who was well, was opposed because of his race. And and there were even to this day, there are people who claim that he wasn't even born in the United States. Yeah, well, it, there's just not much you can do about that. Um, but he, I don't know that he felt a special weight in that situation. He obviously knew that people expected him to say something. Um, but it's also just a who on earth needs to be convinced that it is wrong to target people because of their race. What a president can do again is, is just create some sense of moral clarity, but also the way he viewed eulogies was you, you spend some time memorializing a victim and, and telling us about their life. Uh, and that doesn't have to be sad, you know, it, it, especially if somebody lived a joyous life, you don't have to be sad and talking about their life. But he always viewed the second part of a eulogy as an opportunity to basically direct the country to remember you know, what are our obligations now that this person's gone? What are our responsibilities to carry on in, in their wake? And he did that after Newtown. He did that after Tucson. And he did that in Charleston, too. When you were chief White House speechwriter, were the speeches just a collaboration between you and the president? Or did other people also get involved? I had an extraordinary team of writers in the White House. There were eight of us. Uh, two wrote for the First Lady. Two wrote on foreign policy and national security. And the other four of us were just kind of roving utility players who'd write on everything else. And it was it was always most importantly a collaborative exercise between us and the president. But we had, um, you know, a team of policy people who were experts in every single issue. We'd bring them in. We had a, you know, the communications team would help kind of craft the overarching message. We had lawyers to make sure everything was was sound. And we had an army of fact checkers who, who made sure uh, everything was fireproof. So every speech was not just a collaboration between us and the president, but actually dozens of people. Since so many different things were happening within those 10 days, were you feeling like you were being picked on? 
<laughs> no, and that's because. Or it was just something was, you expected because we don't see some th- 10 days like that all that often. No, I, I didn't have time to feel picked on. What we did feel was I was anxious about the Supreme Court decisions, not because, you know, the, the, the Washington media tended to view these things through the lens of whether or not they were a loss for the president. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we looked at things. There was a very real chance that millions of Americans would lose their health insurance. There's a very real chance that millions of Americans would be told you can never get married to the person you love. And we had a bunch of gay colleagues in the White House, and I just could not imagine having to look them in the eye if their Supreme Court had told them that. So a lot of the anxiety I felt that week had nothing to do with my job, even though we had to write speeches. We had to prepare speeches for those outcomes. Um, my the, the other anxiety I had was just not letting him down with a draft of the Charleston eulogy and not letting the country down with with what he needed to say after something like that. So it's not really getting picked on this. The stress of the job was just trying to make sure you did it right and and did right by him and did right by the country. You must have wondered what you would have done after the Supreme Court did its uh, came down with its recent decision on Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the first things I thought of, uh, and it's awful. And this is not really answering your question, but but the roots of that, A, go back 50 years. You know, you've had a concerted effort on the right for 50 years to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that's one of the points this book makes is I don't give Barack Obama credit for the progressive victories of those 10 days in June 2015. Yes, he pushed Obamacare through, but that was also the result of 100 year movement for universal health care even if we haven't gotten all the way there. Marriage equality was the result of a 50-year movement for LGBTQ rights, even if we haven't finished that journey either. I mean, this stuff takes a long, long time. And the, the, the more recent roots of the Dobbs decision happened in 2014 when Democrats lost the Senate. And that's what gave Mitch McConnell the, the power to block, for the first time, hmm. block a vote on a president's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. And then Trump got to rush through three justices that gave him enough to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, if that doesn't convince you that midterm elections are important, I don't know what can. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Cody Keenan. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give, and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. 
But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to, Gra- to Cody Keenan uh, to talk about his book, Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America from Mariner Books. Um, Mr. Keenan began his career as an intern for Senator Ted Kennedy, interned on Barack Obama's presidential campaign, and then worked his way up uh, to become the White House Director of Speech Writing. Uh, he, uh, he, your daughter's name is Grace, and you named yeah. the book that's largely about politics after her? Or no, are you making, were... doing a pun there? They were born at the same time uh, in 2020. Well, they're they're both they're both named after the concept. You know, it, it was it was Grace that sort of changed the country, the way the country walked in those 10 days. And we, my wife and I, moved here to New York City. Uh, my wife's a New Yorker. She was born and raised here in, in Staten Island. We moved here uh, early 2020, just just three months, two months before the pandemic. And we found out that she was pregnant two weeks before everything shut down in New York City. And had she worked t- for you before you got married? She never worked for me. Uh, she she worked alongside me in a communications office in the White House. She was my fact checker. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the president's fact checker. She fact checked all of his speeches. And you know that could be a delicate thing when uh, sure. the, the person the person you're dating tells you you're wrong in twenty different <laughs> ways a day with with fully detailed citations. Um, but yeah, we we found out we were pregnant two weeks before the pandemic, and that was you know it was a scary time here in New York. We, there was a, a mobile morgue truck across the street from our apartment for months, and that's a scary time to be pregnant when you're still when everybody's still trying to figure out what COVID is. And uh, then we had a, a full summer of protests after George Floyd, and you know we had the contested election uh, that fall. So, but through it all, um, it was a it was a blessedly complication free pregnancy, and. Gracie, our daughter, you know, she kicked at the same time every night, 1130, like clockwork. And so she she was kind of this blessing that we didn't feel like we deserved a a constant, a reassuring constant in in a in a stressful time. And so we just we looked at each other in the hospital and said, let's her name is Grace. Hmm. How much power do you think presidential speeches actually have? They have a lot of power. I I understand this this question. I, I get asked all the time with whether they still mean anything or matter. And, a speech. And, and whether I'm assuming some ma- have mattered more over the history of this country than others. Sure. A, a speech doesn't change anything on its own. A speech is not going to change everybody's mind or pass a piece of legislation. That is ultimately up to all of us. And there's been this people people tend to assume that just the very virtue of the bully pulpit is enough to change things. What it can do is set the tone. It can change the public debate. Uh, it can shine a light on injustice and, and what needs to be changed. But ultimately, for things to change, it depends on us. Um, if, if you want any proof that a president's words matter, you just look at the Trump administration. And he almost only spoke to his base at all times and went out of his way to kind of pry open fissures in the country and divisions. And that unleashed some pretty dark stuff. And that gave people the permission structure to kind of act out on some of their worst impulses and and almost made political violence become an acceptable part of democracy, even though it's not. Um, it, It shows you that a lot of a president's job is to keep a lid on things. Um, 
to, to guide us as a country. And when that goes off the rails and you don't have a president who does that, it can take us to some pretty dark places. Well, at times, Trump's speeches have gotten ungrammatical. And I wondered whether he actually has speechwriters or whether he largely he's largely improvisatory. You know, he had a teleprompter, so it shows you that he does uh, have speechwriters. But I, you know, one of one of the the darkly funny quirks of Donald Trump as a public speaker is, you could tell he never read his speeches beforehand. He'd be reading them in a in a teleprompter, and if he read something that he wasn't aware of, he would ad lib in. You know, many people don't know this. Mm-hmm. Even if it was something everybody knows, no, man, you're just exposing that you didn't know that. How do you think speeches are being used by President Biden's team? Uh, I I think they're doing a good job in a very difficult media environment. I mean, it is hard to break through. People, everything changes with the passage of time. People look back on Obama now as this great orator, and, and I think he stands up that way among other presidents. But people forget that there were plenty of times when... You know, the media narrative was uh, Obama's not breaking through. Obama's not changing people's minds. And, you know, when it got at his most stressful, he would often uh, blame the speechwriters in his communications operation. And I understand the tendency for that. It is very difficult to change people's minds. I think the Biden administration has a good story to tell. It's just a very difficult media environment to break through. I mean, the, the Republican Party and the right wing have a media apparatus that Democrats do not. And beyond that, people... We can create our own news cocoons now through social media where we may not see a dissenting viewpoint for weeks at a time. You just read things that amplify your own previously held point of view. So it is very difficult for presidents to break through. Well, looking back over the the history of the United States, uh, phrases uh, uh, during from some presidential speeches have become part of our history, whether it's Jefferson or Lincoln or FDR or Lyndon Johnson, John F. Kennedy. Um, Does that really matter or is is that just part of the way the news is the news media deals with stuff? It's funny. Barack Obama always disdained sound bites and one liners. Uh, my friend Ben Rhodes and I, who was another speechwriter, we'd sometimes try to sit down and 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 think of a line to insert into a speech that would be the line that lives through history. And almost uniformly, Obama would send back a draft with that line crossed out because a speech needs to tell a story, you know, it, it, with a beginning, a middle and an end about where we've been, where we are and where we need to go. And the entire arc of the presidency, all 3,400 speeches and statements should be a part of that rhetorical arc. So he never liked the one-liners. He never liked debating. You know, it, it, he enjoyed kind of the back and forth of a debate. But but part of modern debating in the modern media environment is, you know, everybody expects candidates to have this list of zingers. You know, the, the one-liners that really zing your opponent and, and that are picked up in the press the next day. And he never liked that. Um, he always wanted his speeches to tell a bigger story about this country. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know which lines will be engraved into memorials someday. In the 2011 speech you wrote for President Obama for the memorial service for the victims of the shooting in Tucson, Arizona, you wrote, quote, 
But at a time when our discourse has become so sharply polarized, at a time when we are far too eager to lay the blame for all that ails the world at the feet of those who happen to think differently than we do, it's important for us to pause for a moment and make sure that we're talking with each other in a way that heals, not in a way that wounds. Well, that's very nice, but <laughs> it doesn't seem to be working out that way. Well, what's the alternative? Should a president not push for us to do that? You know, I understand that it might sound naive when everyone's kind of tearing each other apart at all times. But why would you want Barack Obama or any president to give up on that notion? You know, I I don't think I don't think that's naive at all. It's actually harder to try to summon people's better angels. But but look where we are now. According Uh, to a recent Pew Research Center study, The growing divide in this country goes beyond political disagreements. Increasingly, Republicans and Democrats view not just the opposing party, but also the people in that party in a negative light. Growing shares in each party now describe those in the other party as more close-minded, dishonest, immoral, and unintelligent than other Americans. And I must admit, I've been guilty of some of that talk as well. Sure. And that's not news. You know, you've also got people don't want to marry people from other political parties either. Uh, Thanksgivings can get pretty rough. Hmm. But, you know, why would you want to live this way? I I think wanting to practice a better kind of politics is not naive, even if it's diametrically opposed to what we live in right now. Why wouldn't we want to reach for that? You know, why wouldn't we try to do that? I teach speech writing now at my alma mater, Northwestern University. And I don't care what my students' political backgrounds are because all parts of the political spectrum can benefit from better speech writing. And I tell them all, you know, whatever your politics are, I want you to write big, not necessarily lofty, because that's that's not how speech writing should be. But I want you to write about big ideas, big things, big important values, make us reach for something better. You know, I, I don't think there's... I'm sure there's there are people out there who well, there are a lot of people out there who profit from the fact that we fight all day long and who get off on it. But I think most Americans are tired of it and don't want it. I know I am. I don't want my daughter to grow up in a political atmosphere like this. So but there's also no conflict between fighting like heck for your values and your ideals, but also fighting like heck for something better. Well, we also are seeing it go beyond discussion. Just uh, yesterday, there was an attempt, um, or somebody wanted to, to shoot Vice President, uh, wanted to shoot Nancy Pelosi, right? Um, yeah. And in, instead shot her husband. So we're seeing uh, a fair amount of violence as well, which is, means that the speech speaking isn't working enough. What's the alternative? Well, obviously, we're going to have to arrest those people. But uh, well, sure. But but you look at look at look at January sixth, right? Almost everybody who was involved in that attack has been sentenced and prosecuted and sent to jail. That's all important too. No one's saying don't do that. But look what happens when we don't keep a lid on this stuff, right? I I think it was a the last thing I read that it it was a hammer attack uh, in in the Pelosi home. But not that that makes it even remotely better. But if we keep going down this road. Well, no, I take that away. We're already we're already there. The fact that you've got 
it's it is not both sides here. It is really one side that is engaging in talk of political violence. And there are unhinged people who go out there and act out on it. One political party tried to overthrow the government two years ago. We have no idea who, who took out this. As far as I know, we have no idea who attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband today. But it doesn't matter. You need to lock this stuff down. Right. And, and that begins at the top. That begins with presidents and all public servants condemning it, saying it is not OK, because there are people out there who who take Donald Trump's words. And other there are sitting Republicans right now. Senator Lindsey Graham promised rioting in the streets if they don't get their way. Madison Cawthorn, who lost his primary, promised bloodshed if the election didn't go their way. This is coming from one side and it needs to be shut down because it's actually starting to happen now. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Cody Keenan, former chief White House speechwriter. We're talking about his book, Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America, that is published by Mariner Books. Um, which speech are you proudest of? What's the most memorable to you and, and why? Uh, I have two answers to this. It's the it's the Selma speech for sure. That that speech is is if I had to pick one that people should go read, it's Obama's speech in Selma in March 2015. It is the purest distillation of the way he views patriotism. So you were learning His, from him as well. You were you had to understand what he thought to write the the, the best speech possible. Uh, I'm assuming you generally agreed with him. Yeah, it makes the job a lot easier when you do. You don't necessarily agree on every single issue, but it's always better to write for someone with whom you have broad agreement. Uh, it just makes the job more fun. But that speech was really the best distillation of patriotism and and how he views American exceptionalism and what the truer, better story of America is. Uh, my other answer is more parochial. It was when the Chicago Cubs came to the White House after winning the World Series. And what happened? I just got to pay tribute to my favorite baseball team. You know, the, it was a real dogfight to get them there before we left office because they usually come the summer after. Um, and, you know, the president presidents always welcome championship sports teams to the White House, but they're busy people. So you limit those speeches to five minutes. I handed the president a 25 minute draft that morning and he looked at it and he was like, what the heck, man? And I said, hey, just go out there and read it. It's great. Uh, and it was, it was fun. It was the first time that the first lady had come to a, a sports team event at the white house. And she talked to all the players, um, uh, beforehand where in a room without cameras. And she was telling about how she used to sit on her dad's lap and watch Cubs games as a kid. And you see these big, tough players all wiping tears away. And it was just, you know, for those of us who've been waiting 108 years, it was a pretty amazing moment. Do you think that a chief speechwriter can be successful for different presidents? Uh, yes. I don't think that proposition has ever been tested. Um, I mean, what would have you know, happened if, uh, if, uh, Mrs. Clinton had won the election? Do you think you would have stayed on? She probably would have wanted to bring in her own. Um, and I actually work with her former speechwriters now at my speechwriting firm. Um, but you always want to have someone writing for you that you already have a camaraderie with. Um, that you have an easy collaboration with. You, you don't want to have to figure that out on the fly in the first days of a new administration. What's interesting is I have a friend who who writes speeches over at 10 Downing Street in London, and I think he's oh, on his ninth. I think he's on his ninth prime minister now. Uh, he's been there for 15 years. And for them, it's more of a career civil service job. Over here, it's just more of a, you know, you stay and write for uh, somebody you won with. Hmm. 
Well, <laughs> Britain uh, is in serious trouble right now, and I, I don't envy the speechwriters, that's for sure. Um, you're, you mentioned uh, your, your speechwriting firm. You're now a partner at Fenway Strategies. What kinds of speechwriting do you do now? Uh, basically the same as the White House. We're, we're very choosy with who we write for. It's got to be somebody doing, you know, we're all progressives, obviously, but it's got to be somebody who's doing good work in the world. Um, and our clients run the gamut from, you know, startups, advocacy groups, elected officials, a couple corporations, mm -hmm. uh, but, but they all have to be making a positive difference in the world. And it's just fun to have, you know, there are eight of us who, who wrote the Obama administration. There are some that wrote for um, Secretary Clinton, uh, and we've got a bunch of great young speechwriters who I really enjoy. It's like a second bite of the apple, getting to work with a team and mentor young speechwriters, and it's just a lot of fun. Although you're never going to do anything on the level of the State of the Union address. I, I am comfortable never writing a State of the Union address again. Uh, how, how involved were you in writing them? Uh, I was, I was lead pen on... Every year, right? Yeah, I wrote and the last four. That was an eight-year presidency. Yep. Uh, John Favreau was lead pen on the first four. I was lead on the second four. And, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous privilege. It's, it's a president's biggest audience every single year, but it is, it is the most frustrating speech to write, to have to, it, it's just, you, you, we'd start each process saying, this is the year we're not going to let it be a laundry list. We're going to do something really different and fun. And inertia just grinds you down uh, to the point where you're just trying to write a laundry list as, as, in, in as much of a storytelling, lyrical fashion as you can. You must have been pleased to hear what Barack Obama said about your book. I'm going to quote, At a time when the meaning of America is up for grabs, Cody Keenan's new book chronicles 10 days that tested us and ultimately showed us at our best. It's a captivating story about what's worth fighting for, an antidote to cynicism that will make you believe again. I'm that's not a very, sure that was your goal when you were writing. That's, that's a very nice gesture from the old boss. Uh-huh. Um, well, obviously, you were appreciated. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left. Are there other things that you feel were important that we should should address? Um, you know, I, one of my favorite things, the reactions to this book, it, people people can find my email address online. So I've been getting some, some just really nice letters from people, but the, probably the most powerful are the ones who say, you know what, I read this and I immediately signed up to go knock on some doors for a candidate this weekend. And that's, that's not what I had in mind when I wrote it, but, but to, to see people actually doing that and, and going out there and, and fighting for this democracy and fighting for continuing to fight for change is just, is, is really wonderful. You know, I, I wanted this book to, a tell the story of those 10 days. Cause I think they're going to be really important for history, but I also want my students, people like my students to read this book and have it do what other books did for me and convince them that politics and public service is a worthy place for them to pour their time and their efforts. Cause we're just fed a steady diet of cynicism all day long. And there really are good people out there working every single day uh, to, to, to make this country a better place. And ultimately when my daughter who's almost two was old enough to read this book, you know, I wrote in the acknowledgements to her, uh, I hope this book inspires you to, to always surround yourself with people that are working to make the world a better place. Cause it's just going to be more fun. Well, the polling numbers have gotten rather confusing and each day we hear the Republicans are going to take over Congress. The Democrats are going to, remain in power in Congress is going to be close. Uh, 
can speeches have much of an impact? Because uh, the president has been speaking about all of the issues, and th- th- his speeches don't seem to be having uh, much of an impact on uh, how the public is, is reacting. Or, uh, or, am I, or are the polls something not necessarily to be trusted? I, I'm not enough of a pollster. I mean, I'm not a pollster at all to know whether or not they can be trusted. But I, you know, I, I, as a consumer of polls, against my better judgment, they're only useful for people who run campaigns to decide where to put their resources and campaign committees. They are not useful to the rest of us. You know, that what matters is who shows up to vote. And, and if enough of us show up to vote, you know, President Obama will be hitting a campaign trail uh, very, very shortly this weekend. And in the closing days, you know, what what a president's words can do, what anybody's words can do is convince people to go out and vote and grab friends and take them and make a plan. And people people are busy. You know, some of us have multiple jobs and and babies at home and it's just life is hard enough as it is. So for for Barack Obama to go out there, the, the first part of any of his speeches is always going to be telling people, here's where you can find out how to vote. Here's where you can find out where your polling place is. You know, grab some friends, make a plan and go. And that always works. I mean, people people appreciate hearing that. It gets picked up on local news. It, it sounds silly, but just that alone can can get more people out to vote. Cody Keenan's book is Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America, published by Mariner Books. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, Leonard, I really appreciated it. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for her invaluable help in preparing today's interview. And to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of London Lopez at Large, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. You might want to check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopateatlarge.org. As you know, it's just leonardlopate at wbai.org. I'm sorry. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org. Org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America by Cody Keenan. So why not make that call now, 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20 a month, uh, however much you think uh, you can afford to help us p- be able to plan for the future. And anyone who signs up to be, become a BAI buddy for $10 or more will receive a BAI buddy, uh, tote bag. Either way, we hope you'll call now because... BAI is the only New York radio station that's 100% listener-sponsored. We don't take uh, foundation grants. We don't take ads. 
So give us that call. And we hope that you can join us on Monday when my guest will be Monona Russell discussing the latest issues regarding our health. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.